Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. My guest for this episode is Rod Dreher, who is a senior editor at The American Conservative. He's written and edited articles for The New York Post, The Washington Times, and National Review. On this program, we'll be discussing his book, Live Not by Lies, A Manual for Christian Dissidents. Rod Dreher, thanks for being my guest today. It's great to be here. So you derived the title of your book, Live Not by Lies, from an essay of the same name by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So I was wondering if you could first explain who he was for some of those in our listening audience who might not be familiar with his work, as well as what that original essay was about. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was probably the greatest dissident of the 20th century. He won the Nobel Prize. Uh, He was an enemy to the Soviet state. They sent him through the Gulag, which is a a system of prison camps that the Soviets set up. And... uh, He came out of there and wrote this amazing book called The Gulag Archipelago, which absolutely rocked the Soviet state and told the truth about what was happening in the Soviet Union. He was also a Christian. And uh, just before he was expelled by the Soviets in 1974, he sent out an essay to his followers telling them, look, we may not be able to overthrow this totalitarian regime, but the one thing all of us can do and must do is to live not by lies, which is to say, whenever we are compelled or the state seeks to compel us to nod our heads and say, yes, this is true to something we know is a lie, we have to refuse no matter what it costs us, because the whole regime is upheld by lies, by everybody being afraid to say what they know is true. And uh, Solzhenitsyn said that if we don't do this, if if we don't live in truth, no matter what it costs us, then we're surrendering our integrity and costing ourselves our souls. Interestingly enough, Shane, uh, Václav Havel, a Czech dissident uh, who went to prison for, he was not a Christian of any sort, but the Czech communists put him in prison for his political convictions. He also said the same thing several years later in a famous essay called The Power of the Powerless, which I, I 
quote also in my book, Live Not By Lies, uh, he called it living in truth. And his, his point was essentially the same as Solzhenitsyn's, that we have to be prepared to suffer for the truth for the sake of our own integrity, even if it can ultimately do no good to overthrow the regime. It's important to do all the same. Throughout your book, you recount a number of conversations that you had with those who lived under the rule of communism, and you report that essentially everyone you spoke with was increasingly worried about what's happening to the West in general and America in particular. What is it that they're seeing that the rest of us do not see? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the genesis of the book right there. I, I got a call from an American physician whose mother had grown up in Czechoslovakia under communism, and she spent four years in a, a Czech prison for practicing her Catholic faith. But she immigrated to America later, and he was born and raised here. And she's the one who first said that, son, the things I see happening in America now remind me of what happened under communism. And he called me and told me that. I thought it was alarmist. But then I started talking to others in this country and in the UK who grew up under communism. And they say all the same. They all say the same thing, that it is happening. Well, what's happening? Uh, people are losing their jobs for the things they say and the things they believe. Hmm. People are being muzzled in the public square and within institutions, uh, universities, uh, in the media, within newsrooms, and within corporations for holding beliefs that do not comport with this new social, so-called social justice ideology, uh, usually focusing on identity politics. Now, it's one thing to be able to dissent from these things. This is a classically liberal country where, you know, we sometimes fight, we often fight about things, but dissent is normal and American, and we learn to tolerate dissent. Well, this new ideology does not tolerate any dissent at all. Right. And uh, the, the people who grew up under communism said that it always starts with people losing their jobs, with cancel culture, but that's not where it stops. So these people who lived under communism are raising an alarm trying to help Americans wake up and see what's happening. Because the problem here, Shane, is that we Americans think it can't happen here. Right. It will never happen here. We're America. These things just don't happen in places like this. In the introduction to my book, I quote Alexander Solzhenitsyn saying, there is always this fallacious belief. It would not be the same here. Here, such things are impossible. Alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on Earth, even in America. You say that what's going on today is not a carbon copy of what happened in the old Soviet system. What's happening now is what you refer to as a soft totalitarianism. What is soft totalitarianism? Well, what we think of totalitarianism of any sort, what comes to mind is George Orwell's 1984 torture, prison, what comes to mind is Stalinism, what they had in the Soviet Union and the communist bloc. But if that's our only idea of what totalitarian is, we're going to miss what's happening now. The word totalitarianism was invented by, believe it or not, Benito Mussolini, the fascist leader of Italy in the 20th century. It describes a modern political system in which uh, the state has all authority, but it politicizes everything in society. Uh, so under, a t under an authoritarian system, all you have to worry about is the state's monopoly on political power, but everything else is outside the state. Under totalitarianism, this, the ideology, the ruling ideology goes into all aspects of life. Well, I think that's what we're seeing here, but it's going to be less in 1984 and more like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where the, the state maintained uh, control 
over everybody's lives, not by inflicting pain and terror, but rather by manipulating their access to status and comfort and all the aspects of a pleasant life. Uh, we see here in our society now when when you have things like sports, which used to be the one thing that brought Americans together, well, now it's become thoroughly politicized. And the different aspects of life where you could live outside of cultural politics, much less party politics, uh, these spaces are becoming fewer and fewer all, all the time. And uh, when you get to a point where you can't have, where you have to worry about every single thing you say that you might violate political orthodoxies, and lose your job for it or be denounced by friends and family and become a pariah. You know, this is a totalitarian situation, whether or not the jackbooted thugs show up at your front door. Yeah, along those lines, you give an example in your introduction of a professor who used to live in Czechoslovakia who told you that he began noticing a shift about a decade ago. You know, friends would lower their voices and look over their shoulders when expressing conservative views. I grew up like this, he said. Yeah, yeah. And this same professor, I don't put this in the book, but he lives in the Washington, D.C. area, and he told me that some of his friends who work in the federal government uh, said that they don't dare express support for Donald Trump because they're afraid it's going to affect their jobs. Huh. And uh, but, but he said that Americans just seem to be like the proverbial frog in the boiling water. They just don't see how crazy it's gotten. Recently, I had a guest on this program who lived in Egypt for a while teaching comparative religion. But even though he taught at the American University in Cairo, he was being forced to push one religion over the other, that Islam is the official religion and the other religions are false. And he said, well, that's not really what I was hired to do. Anyway, he uh, ended up getting arrested and told the story on the show. But then when he came to the States, he was hired at a college and within his first semester, he was put on leave because he used the, had the wrong use of pronouns. That's it. But you see what's happening here. Social justice is an alternative religion. And I write, as I write in the book, we can't really understand what's happening here in its fullness unless we understand the social justice warriors as essentially uh, avatars of a new religion or a pseudo religion. And this is what the Bolsheviks were like, too. I, I write about this amazing history that came out two or three years ago called the House of Government. It's a history of the Bolshevik Revolution written by a Russian-American historian named Yuri Seleskin. And in it, he describes the Bolshevik movement, you know, which later overthrew the Tsar and established the Soviet Union. He says that they were like a millennial apocalyptic political cult, Yeah. right? They were obviously not religious believers, but they had a religious-like belief in Marxism. Right. And they were zealots. They did not stop at anything. And you could not oppose them at all without being treated like a dangerous heretic and eventually killed. Well, that helped me understand so much our own social justice warriors and the way they approach what they consider to be truth and justice. And I think that this is a dangerous, dangerous thing. But here's the key thing, Shane. They're coming at this through compassion and tolerance exactly. and diversity and inclusion. Uh, I quote a, a man, a great 20th century intellectual, René Girard, a Frenchman who was a Christian, uh, saying that the new Antichrist, uh, and he taught at Stanford now, so this is the kind of language he was using, he said the new Antichrist will come in and pretend to be more Christian than Christ. Hmm. It will come in talking about compassion and how we must all be compassionate, and it will be absolutely ruthless in stomping out 
any form of expression or life that is not compassionate. Hmm. And Rene Girard said that in this new dispensation, Christians, traditional Christians, are seen as the worst enemies of true compassion. Gerard died in 2015, but we are living out now the things that he predicted. Wow. Let's talk about Marx for a minute. Though he despised religion, you refer to him as a kind of secular prophet who you say gave birth to a vision of political economy that uncannily paralleled the promises of apocalyptic Christianity. How so? Yeah. um, In the Communist Manifesto, which came out in 1848, Marx and Engels talked about the coming communist revolution that would sweep away all the old world and all of its uh, exploitive institutions and systems. And he said that once a revolution happened, uh, the revolution would divide the sheep from the goats, the good from the evil, the wheat and the tares. The good people were the workers, right? the proletariat. The evil people were the capitalists and the bourgeoisie, and including you know, religious leaders, churches. There would be this apocalyptic violence, Marx predicted, called the revolution. And after the revolution, once the evildoers were all slain and done away with, then man would be returned to a state of harmony and perfection and would be able would live in paradise with the withering away of the state. And uh, we would be back in the Garden of Eden. Literally heaven on earth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's utopia. It is a secular, if that's the right word, attempt to bring about the second coming. Uh, The famous political philosopher, conservative philosopher, Eric Vogelin, said that the chief political lesson of the 20th century is thou shalt not eminitize the eschaton, which is a fancy way of (laughs) saying, don't try to bring about the second coming, let God do it. But but that's what they tried to do. And one difference that I see between the Marxist and our social justice warriors, it's hard to know what their end game is critical theory, whether it's critical race theory or queer theory or the different sub-ideologies that they use, I don't see how, within their own way of thinking, how we're going to reach pure communism, as Marx taught, um, because they keep finding more and more things to be aggrieved about. And I I think it's just going to be a bloodletting without end. You know, Dennis Prager has argued for years that ideological leftism has actually been the most dynamic and evangelistic religion over the past century. And as evidence of that, he says that it's not only taken over our nation's schools and universities, the media and in the entertainment industry, but it's also made significant inroads into many religious institutions and seminaries, whether Christian or Jewish. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just today as we're talking, I I got an email from a professor at a Catholic uh, university who is the faculty advisor to the pro-life group on campus. And she told me that when the pro-life group applied for the usual permit to have a, a booth at the big community event they have, the diversity office tried to deny it to them on the grounds that it wasn't welcoming enough. Hmm. A pro-life group at a Catholic campus. But the point here is it has taken over so many Christian schools and churches and seminaries because if you disagree with it, they call you uncompassionate. I write about in the book how this great thinker, Philip Reif, he was a secular Jewish thinker. Uh, He really understood the ideology of our time as being something broader than just left versus right. It was something that encompassed both left and right. Reif said that we live in a world where the therapeutic has triumphed. In other words, uh, the idea that 
good and evil, right and wrong, the old moralistic way of seeing the world that we got from the Bible. And by the way, Reef was a secular Jew, but he was not a religious believer. But he said that you know, the Bible had gone away and it had been replaced by a therapeutic culture, a culture that didn't claim that there was right and wrong. There was only um, serenity, inner serenity and anxiety. And so truth became whatever made you feel good, yeah. whatever made you feel at home in your own body and at home in society. Reef said that this was going to be uh, terrifyingly destructive. He said that this was a more profound revolution than even the Bolshevik revolution. Wow. Because even the Bolsheviks had a concept of ultimate right and wrong, however flawed it was. But right and wrong in, their, in the therapeutic society, it doesn't exist. All that exists is our feelings. And uh, Reef said in 1966, I mean, it's un- incredible that he, he wrote this at the beginning of the sexual revolution. He said the sexual revolution would be a major component of advancing this. And he said that religious leaders in America don't see it happening, but it has already made major inroads into their religious institutions. Hmm. They're going to do their best to deny it, but there it is. Hmm. And in fact, Jane, here we are right now. You, if you look at what, what's going on in American religion right now, maybe we can get into this later if you want, but it is collapsing. Among uh, the millennials and Generation Z, we have uh, an absolute collapse, not only of Christian faith itself, institutional Christian faith, but of any sort of concept of what it means to be Christian. Yeah, you say that Reef actually uh, foresaw that when he described the future of religion as a kind of devolution into a watery spirituality, and that he actually lived long enough to see that come true. He did. He died in 2007, I think it is. But, you know, he saw it all happening. He called it an anti-culture, this culture that was coming, because he said that uh, in in his theory, all cultures, uh, whatever they were, required uh, some sort of shared creed that says thou shalt not. Every culture has to be able to say this is what we won't tolerate. But under the therapeutic culture, you know, to say thou shalt not is the forbidden thing. And uh, it's weird, though, because the social justice warriors, they have suddenly a very strong thou shalt not uh, series of thou shalt nots. But they're all built around protecting racial identity, sexual identity and gender identity. And we the rest of us, because uh, we, we've been so saturated. I mean, I'm, look, I was born in 67, a year after we wrote this. I grew up in the therapeutic culture, too. I think the rest of us are so um, have been so formed by the therapeutic culture and by the norms of liberal democracy that we can't see the threat coming at us when the threat uses the language of the therapeutic to proclaim its truth and, and its will to power. You know, another thinker I think about, along with uh, Philip Reef, is J. Gresham Machen, who in 1923 wrote his famous book, Christianity and Liberalism. And in that book, he argues that liberal modernism was being substituted for Christianity, but it was essentially Gnostic, individual, private. It's about spirituality. It assumed a whole different picture of God. It denied the sacrifice of Christ. Yeah, well, hasn't he been vindicated? (laughs) I I mean, look around you. It's happening. And one of the reasons I, I wrote my book, The Benedict Option, was to try to wake Christians up to the threat, to what is happening, what is dissolving our faith from within, even within a situation of, of liberty, of personal liberty. Live Not By Lies uh, is sort of a sequel to The Benedict Option. I think I can say that. Uh, but it, it intensifies things and talks about how these same forces that I identified in The Benedict Option well, they've accelerated themselves, they've concentrated themselves, they've accelerated themselves, and they are coming for us. 
here's something interesting too. I, I went to Eastern Europe, the former communist countries, as well as Russia, to talk to Christians who had been dissidents in that time and who had gone through real suffering for the sake of the faith. There was this one priest in Slovakia who said, you know, in some ways it was easier under communism mm. because the light of the gospel shone in the, through that darkness and lit a straight path, a difficult path, but it was a straight path and a clear path. But now when the light of the gospel shines on what we have, it just hits fog. There was a, a really interesting media critic named Neil Postman who died about 20 years ago. And uh, he wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death in the 1980s. Postman talked about the difference between Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Yeah. He said, in, and he thought very strongly that we were entering into a Huxleyan uh, civilization. He said, Postman said that in Orwell, they burned books. But Huxley's fear was that we're going to have a society one day, a dystopia, where nobody had to burn books because nobody was interested in reading them in the first place. Right. And that, I, I mean, that, that's where we are. And similarly about religion. You know, it's uh, it's one thing to have the, the state coming after you for your faith and shutting down your churches and things like that. It's hard for the church to thrive in a situation like that, but it can be done. But in a situation like we're in, where religion is just one choice among many, we shouldn't be surprised to see so many young people falling away. When it comes to the harder forms of totalitarianism, you say that it's difficult for people raised in the free world to grasp the breadth and depth of the lying required simply to exist under communism. All the lies and the lies about the lies that formed the communist order were built on the basis of this foundational lie that the communist state is the sole source of truth. That's actually the kind of language you find among cult leaders, mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it is. And Thank God we don't have a situation quite like that here where all the authority is concentrated in the hands of, a, of the state. But as I say over and over again in the book, we don't have to have that. I think it's what's going to happen here is all the authority is going to be concentrated in the hands of a governing elite, a governing regime that includes uh, state leaders, political leaders, but it also includes corporate leaders, right. leaders of institutions like media, universities, and so on and so forth, Hollywood, uh, who all share this woke ideology, uh, this anti-Christian ideology, and will keep pumping it out through social media, through you know, entertainment, and so on and so forth. And they will make it so any dissent becomes impossible. Just today, as we're talking, I received two emails from employees of the same major corporation. And they were sending me uh, some stuff that had come out from the CEO to the whole company, inviting everyone to participate in a discussion about race involving Dr. Ibram Kendi, the guy who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist. Well, Kendi's work has been denounced even by black critics like John McWhorter, the linguist John McWhorter, as being you know, totalitarian, as being crazy, dividing good and evil on the basis of race and, and so on and so forth. But Kendi, because he calls himself anti-racist, well, nobody wants to be a racist. Right. No Christian should want to be a racist. But the way Kendi defines anti-racism is really antithetical to any kind of liberal principles of fair play. Of uh, or it, it allows for no dissent. If you dissent from his point of view, he says, then you're a racist. Well, you can see how manipulative this is, but it has been brought into corporations. Now, imagine these two employees who wrote this to me saying how frightened they are 
for their future within this corporation because they don't want to be seen as dissenters. Uh, this is how it happens over and over. And if you want to rise up in this corporation, you better keep your mouth shut. This is happening in so many corporations. And people begin to internalize this idea that maybe I am a racist if I disagree with this, or if I disagree with it, I better be quiet if I want to succeed. This is how totalitarianism works. It doesn't have to seize you and grab you by the scruff of the neck and rub your nose in the dirt and say, you must believe. People come to love Big Brother by having it come to them throughout the, the frameworks, the things that give their lives meaning and stories that give their lives meaning. Right. And so they, they use language of totalitarians and they use things like this things happening in, in corporations to make it impossible even to conceive of disagreeing. Yeah. In fact, one person you interviewed said that dictatorships can make life hard for you, but they don't want to devour your soul. Totalitarian regimes are seeking your souls. That doesn't sound merely like an alternative religion or worldview. That sounds demonic, actually. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think that's what's happening here. You know, I think it sounds crazy to talk this way. It really does. I mean, I, I believe in demons. I, <laughs> I'm a Christian, but I, I don't like to resort to this kind of language to talk about ordinary political and cultural realities. Right. Nevertheless, when I look at the sort of things that are happening now and you see the teeth bared, right? And it becomes really, really frightening to, to realize we really are dealing with principalities and powers here. And I think so many well-meaning Christians don't understand what's happening because, as I said earlier, no faithful Christian wants to be a racist. No faithful Christian wants to treat a, a gay person or a transgendered person cruelly because of their condition. But at the same time, you know, you would be a very poor Christian indeed and a cowardly Christian if you were quiet about what you know truth is. Yeah because you were afraid that that's where we are. Last year, I watched a documentary about North Korea hosted by Michael Palin of Monty Python fame. And uh, what I found fascinating was the fact that when he initially arrived at the train station, his hosts told him to turn off the camera. And uh, when he was able to turn it back on, he told the viewers what they wanted to know was whether he had any Bibles with him. That was the one question that they wanted to ask off camera. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing that, that the totalitarian regime can't allow into their country. Right. Yeah. Not uh, do you have uh, any Adam Smith with you, you know, or uh, <laughs> but but do you have a Bible? And and somebody was, asked, was asking me the other day on a podcast, are, are you planning to write an, another book? And my idea is that it'll be part of a trilogy is to write a book about what the Chinese church is, is suffering. Huh and how they are managing to thrive in their totalitarian situation. Because what happened in the Soviet Union and, and the Soviet satellite countries to Christians is not the same as what's going on in China. I, I think that the Chinese church actually has some distinct things to offer to us that the people who under endured Soviet uh, totalitarianism don't. And I think that'll be the third and uh, leg of the stool, so to speak, the third book in the trilogy. You've talked about social justice uh, a little bit here and there, and uh, one of the things I thought that was interesting about your book was the fact that you say people in the West, Christians even, are confused about the this language of social justice. Talk a little bit about the origin of that phrase and how its definition has changed over time. Sure. The, the phrase was coined by a Jesuit priest who was simply trying to talk about what would a just Christian social order look like, you know, and... Generally speaking, he said that uh, 
a just, socially just social order would be one in which every person in that order had the capacity to live out fully up to their dignity, their God-given human dignity. That's a big generality, but one of the things he meant by it was that nobody should be so poor that their humanity was defaced by their poverty and suffering. A just social order has to have freedom in it, but it also has to take care of the poor. And that is Christianity 101, I would say. But the way it's used, the term social justice is used by our social justice warriors today is very different. In the Christian point of view, justice, which is to say right and wrong, how we determine what is right and what is wrong, and how different competing claims on justice within a pluralistic society, how we adjudicate that, it is all predicated on Christian thought you know, and, and the, the biblical idea of right and wrong. Yep. Under social justice, it's a very different sort of thing. So for Christians, we can certainly agree with the, the secular social justice people when they talk about the importance of caring for the poor. But if social justice, if, they, if their idea of social justice means that Christians have to go against Christian teaching, if, for example, we have to approve of uh, transgender rights or same-sex marriage, things like that, or abortion rights, then it's not social justice. That is social injustice. I mean, if we think of justice not as a struggle of power, but rather an idea, an ongoing project of conforming ourselves to God's truth, knowing that we can never fully get there in this life, but you know, it, we're constantly working at it, whether well, you come out in very different ways with an idea of what social justice is. And we Christians have to keep in mind that no order can be socially just if it violates biblical truth. Christianity, you say, teaches that all men and women, not just the wealthy, the powerful, the straight, the white, and all of their so-called oppressors, are sinners in need of the Redeemer. Any form of social justice that projects unrighteousness solely onto a particular group is a perversion of Christian teaching. It's untrue and therefore unjust. Yeah, that guy you're quoting said it better than I just did. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, I mean, look, when we one of the, the aspects of social justice that we see today proclaimed in our universities and institutions is that whiteness, quote unquote, whiteness is a core problem of uh, a core aspect of social injustice. Well, when you actually start reading the, the sort of things that they're talking about, you begin to see that they're doing just what the Bolsheviks did with class. Yeah. They're ascribing virtue and vice to people on the basis of race. Yeah. Uh, I quote in the book something that um, one of the leaders and the predecessor of the KGB said after the, the revolution. He was talking about the Red Terror, which is how the Bolsheviks consolidated power. He was giving instructions to his own agents about how to, who to go kill and who to arrest and imprison and even kill. He said, don't ask them what they did or what they believe. Rather, look and see who they are, which class they come from. Mm. That's how you'll know who the bad people are. You know, And that is the essence of the Red Terror. Well, similarly, in what's emerging here in, in our country, you know, if you define good and evil on the basis of the color of your skin or your sexual identity or your gender and so forth, you cannot help but create tremendous injustice and resentment. And there will be a backlash. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of the most, probably the most quoted thing he ever said was something that he said he learned in prison, that the line between good and evil passes not between social classes, 
but down the middle of every human heart. Mm. I think that is a, an essential Christian insight, and it's something that we have to all think about when we're considering the very real problems of racism and, and bigotry. I don't mean to deny that at all. Right. I don't deny that these things exist and have to be met by Christians with repentance and deep critical analysis. But that's not what's happening with the social justice warriors at all. They're wielding it as a way to get power. It's a weird kind of determinism that the social justice warriors embrace. They say, first of all, that our race, our gender, and all that is intrinsic to our identity and so determinative of our identity that we can't do anything else with it except accept it and, and live with it. On the other hand, when it comes to sex, uh, sex and gender, they believe that it's completely fluid and that we can make up our minds. If you wake up today and you're a woman, then you're a woman. Right. If you wake up tomorrow, decide, no, I'm a man, you're a man. And so we have to embrace total uh, voluntarism when it comes to sex and gender, but uh, this weird kind of racial determinism when it comes to race, it makes no sense. It becomes this sort of crazy idea that we can construct reality based on language. You know, we could just master that if we can make people say the right pronouns and if we can, you know, <laughs> make do things like that, then then we'll reach paradise. But what happens is we make ourselves totally neurotic. Right. I remember talking a couple of years ago to a friend of mine, a European who was doing graduate work at Harvard. And I, I met him in Boston for lunch. I was in town and he was about to head back to Europe. And I said, so what has been the most important thing you've learned here at greatest university in the world. He said, the most important lesson I learned was that the American elites are insane. <laughs> I said, wait, what do you mean? And he said, no, I'm serious. He said that in all my classes, we would have professors. This was at the Kennedy School of Government where the American elites were trained. He said, my pro professors would declare certain topics off limits for the whole class because students had come to them ahead of time and said that they felt triggered by these things. And the professors went along with it. My European friend said, so what this tells me is that the American elites are so fragile emotionally and psychologically, but at the same time, they do not doubt for one second that they are meant to lead. And this guy said, you know, I, I'm from a certain, I'm not going to mention it, but I'm from a European country and we depend on the United States to be the leader of, of the West. And yet this ideology that the elites have imbibed and taken in, it's making them completely unfit to lead and they're going to collapse. Do you think that that fragility that you spoke of, along with uh, other cultural issues like loneliness, the fact that we've been separated and isolated, is making particularly the younger generation more susceptible to buy into the ideals of socialism, social justice, et cetera? Without a doubt. And that's a profound observation. Hannah Arendt, the great political theorist, her first big book was called The Origins of Totalitarianism. Came out in 1951, I think. Uh, after the Second World War, she wanted to go back and see what was it about Germany and Russia that caused the people of those nations to turn to the two different forms of totalitarianism, Nazism and communism. What did they have in common? And the main thing she said that was the, the precursor was mass loneliness and alienation, hmm. you know, and this had different roots in both countries, but uh, a lot of it had to do with the 
suffering of the First World War, which destroyed so many people's lives, businesses, and institutions, and their faith in institutions like the church and the government and democracy. What's so interesting about this is to look at what Arendt said about how this sort of vacuum alienated people desperate for a sense of meaning, for a sense of purpose, and something to unify them to others. People were hungry for it, and the church couldn't give it to them or didn't give it to them back then. But these totalitarians stepped in with this fake political religion and gave it to them. All these things are happening right here in this country. All of these things that are so prevalent in our own society, especially with the millennials and Generation Z, they were there in Russia. They were there in Germany. Interesting. You write that today's social justice warriors are middle class, secular, educated people racked by guilt and anxiety over their own privilege, alienated from their own traditions and desperate to identify with something or someone to give them a sense of wholeness and purpose. For them, justice depends on group identity and achieving justice means taking power away from those who are considered to be exploiters. The social justice gospel, therefore, depends on awakening and inspiring hatred in the hearts of those it wishes to introduce into revolutionary consciousness. That's uh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Well, it's exactly what's happening. I mean, it, and it's it's a terrifying thing to look at from a Christian point of view, that if you can inspire people to think that all the problems that they suffer, all the problems in the world are because of a certain group of people, Jews, the bourgeoisie, the middle class, white people, black people, any any group of people, Christians, it's it's so powerful. Hatred is such a powerful force. And uh, to moralize hatred is an even more destructive force. I remember seeing this when I was working in newsrooms in the mainstream media over LGBT rights. It was incredible to see younger people, um, people in their 20s and 30s, who had not gone through the civil rights revolution, but who were so desperate to be part of to feel like they were part of a civil rights revolution, you know, because this is our great modern drama. Uh, it has uh, overshadowed our politics, you know, the, the great triumphs of the civil rights revolution. And they were able to see that they took the struggle for black civil rights and put that into the struggle for LGBT civil rights. That's exactly right. Well, And, and you couldn't talk to them because I tried to do this with some of my colleagues to talk to them about how homosexuality is not the same thing as race. You know, it, the, the analogy is superficial. They wouldn't hear it. I can remember talking to one young colleague of mine at a newspaper uh, about all this, and he was a Republican and a churchgoer. But I said to him, like, you know, we this newspaper that we work for, we treat Christians and conservatives who don't bind to the LGBT line, we treat them really unfairly. We never give them any kind of fair coverage here. And he looked at me and said, well, do you think we should give the KKK fair coverage if we were writing about civil rights? Wow. I was shocked by that, but he was totally sincere. Wow. And to him, the people who were opposed to LGBT were no better than the Ku Klux Klan. And therefore, if you didn't hate them, then you were somehow a lesser person. And I've also seen in corporations where I've worked, corporate environments, I've seen guilt-ridden white people in positions of power. Interesting. Uh, try so greatly to deal with their own privilege, their own sense of guilt over their privilege by uh, embracing wokeness. But you, you never see them give their own jobs up. You know, they, they will never going to resign to make place for a person of color. Rather, they're just going to push this on down the line or, or bring in people like Ibram Kendi to speak. It, it's just 
incredible the, the way this works psychologically. And, I, and I'll tell you this too. I, I talk in the book about how the people to watch in any revolution are the elites. We're now ruled by transgenderism. It is the thing. It is the coming thing. And we're seeing legislation. The Supreme Court is going to have to rule on this at some point. This is the sort of thing that was on the radical fringe 20 years ago, and now it's completely mainstream. James Davison Hunter, the Christian sociologist at the University of Virginia, he wrote a book called To Change the World about 10 years ago. And he said that evangelicals, like he's an evangelical, evangelicals really get this wrong. They get culture change wrong. They think that culture change comes from the masses. It doesn't. It comes from the elites. And once an idea gets into the elites and is accepted by the elites and spread throughout elite institutions and elite culture, that's when change really happens. And then it goes down to the masses. Now, um, if you talk to most people, many Christians of a certain age and conservatives like me, I'm 53 and older, you know, we have this, this old fashioned idea that the elites are only these liberals who hide out in certain Ivy League universities and so forth and who are corrupting the American people. And if we could just grab political power from them and, and get our judges on the bench, everything is going to change. It's not true. It's if you talk, look at young people, they have no interest in conservative politics. Many of them have no interest in religion. And this is not necessarily because they, you know, we sent them off to college and their minds got corrupted. It's more a case of it is just in the environment. Once elites started believing that it was their job to use their privilege to advocate for this gospel, then they did it. And now it's just in the air. Everybody breathes. What is woke capitalism? Woke capitalism is a term used to describe the philosophy that has been taken up by most American major companies to promote progressive ideals, progressive social ideologies. In so many companies, uh, this wokeness, as we call it, is being pumped through the corporate culture and also into the main culture, into the, the culture in general. And it's not even in, just in the U.S. When I was in Poland last year doing reporting for this book, I talked to Polish Catholics who worked for um, Polish branches of American corporations and Western European corporations, and they were being compelled to participate in the workplace in gay pride celebrations. Huh. They all told me that they didn't have anything against gay people, but as Christians, this violated their consciences, but they had to do it or they would lose their job and they were afraid. So uh, to me, this is cultural imperialism, but that's not how woke capitalists see it. And they might be good Republicans, right? But for big business, all the Republicans have embraced social progressivism. I, I'll give you one more example. I was at a media conference once and spoke to the publisher of a major newspaper. And his paper had really, had openly taken on a crusading advocacy journalism stance towards LGBT rights. And I remember talking to this guy and saying, you know, this is really not fair. Um, you're, you're really weighting your, your coverage and being unfair to the other side. And aren't you afraid of losing subscribers? And mind you, uh, Shane, this was in the context of the collapse of the newspaper industry when everybody's subscriber base was falling off a cliff. Right. I said, aren't you afraid of alienating people by this advocacy journalism? He looked at me and, and this guy was a Republican and I knew from our previous conversation. He said, we don't need bigots as subscribers. Oh, wow. And I thought, isn't this amazing? Here is a man who is a Republican. This is his own business that he's running, a business that is facing massive challenges, existential challenges, and yet being seen as progressive by his own social set was more important to him 
and even his own business. You also talk about surveillance capitalism. Why should our listeners be concerned about surveillance capitalism? The term was invented by a woman named Shoshana Zuboff, who was a former Harvard Business School professor. She wrote a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And surveillance capitalism, she said, is a way of doing business, of making money that was pioneered in 2003 by Google. What Google realized is that every single person who uses the internet generates a massive amount of data every day. Google figured out that if they accumulate enough of this data and find the right algorithms, they can figure out a profile, a sales profile of each person and sell that data to other marketing corporations to get them to send the, the right ads to them. Amazon took this up, Facebook took this up, and it became this multi-billion dollar business. But it's a business that depends on gathering all kinds of private information about each and every individual and storing it and figuring out how to operationalize it, not only to sell the people things, but to manipulate them into believing certain things. It's incredibly sinister. And if we had a government coming in and doing things like saying, we'll put a device, a listening device in your house, and you're not gonna say no to it. You know, we would know exactly what was going on, but 60 million people at least have bought Alexas that listen to your conversation, but they were sold Alexis under the guise of consumer convenience. Right. And this is how it's happening. You know, people, if you can tell Americans that this technology will make your life easier, they'll throw all privacy considerations out the window. It's so crazy that they're even working on technology using artificial intelligence and facial recognition software that will allow smart TVs to monitor the faces of people watching them and to judge their emotional reactions based on the AI software and send all this information back to the smart TV company so they can figure out what exactly about a certain drama or a commercial appeal to people. I mean, this is nuts and it's not science fiction, it's happening right now. So why is this important? Because in China, the Chinese government has a system of social control they call the social credit system. And under the social credit system, all Chinese citizens have a profile within the government computers. And the Chinese government assigns each person a social credit rating. If you have a high social credit score, meaning what you can get, by the way, by doing things like downloading the speeches of Xi Jinping or going to Communist Party meetings and so on. If you have a high rating, you have all kinds of privileges. The best jobs are open to you, the best slots in universities and so on and so forth. But if you have a low social credit score, based on the data the government gets from all your consumer purchases and your, the way you move around the city, it's all tracked. If you have a low score, then your kids can't go to college. Interesting. You have so many fewer privileges. And this ultimately matters. This is a way for them to control people without ever having to send the secret police around. But since everything is all wired up, even in China, they don't, they're moving to be a cashless society where everybody's uh, daily consumer uh, acting in the consumer marketplace is done by your smartphone. Well, when that happens, all the government has to do is look at its data to see that you've, you've been a naughty person, you were going to church this week and so on and so forth and cut you out of the economy wow. where you cannot buy or sell without having that permission by the government. I don't think I need to tell your listeners where this is going. <laughs> Here in the US, we already collect that data. Big companies collect that data. 
How hard would it be to operationalize this and make it to where companies decide they don't want to do business with somebody who's a bigot? You're, are you a member of a bigot church? Well, okay, you have the right to be a member of a bigot church, but we're not going to extend credit to you. We're not going to do banking with you. This is already starting to happen too when uh, big banks decided they wouldn't do business with gun manufacturers. I mean, that's you don't have to be a particular fan of the Second Amendment to see that's kind of dangerous. I think the principle, we, we have the technology there to do a social credit system in America. And I believe that within 10 years, we're going to see the rudimentary um, beginnings of a social credit system here, maybe even sooner than that. Well, you not only diagnosed the problem, but through many of your conversations with those who lived under communist regimes, you offer some advice to your readers about how to live in the truth. Can you give some examples? Sure. Um, the last half of the book is about that, about this practical advice from people who lived it and who tell stories about it. I dedicate the book to a man named Father Tomislav Kolakovic, who is a Croatian priest who was doing anti-Nazi work in Croatia in 1943. He heard the Gestapo was coming for him, so he slipped out of the country, went to his mother's homeland, Slovakia, adopted her last name, Kolakovic, and began teaching students at the Catholic University. And he told these students, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is the Soviets are going to be ruling us when it's over. And the first thing the communists are going to do is come for the church. Mm. So as Christians, we have to be ready. So what Kolakovic did was bring together devoted young Christians for prayer, for study, not only study of scripture, but studying contemporary social problems and talking about them from a Christian point of view, and also to network around the country to start these groups all over the country. And they also learned the arts of resistance, like how to resist an interrogation. The bishops of the time told Father Kolakovic, you're being an alarmist. Things are not going to get that bad. But he knew the mindset of the communists because he had studied for missionary work in Russia, and he didn't listen to his bishops. Sure enough, when the Iron Curtain fell over that country, the first thing they did, they came after the church and the priest and the bishops. The groups that Father Kolokovic set up became the backbone of the underground church. Now, I bring him up in this context, and I dedicated the book to him because I believe the way that Father Kolokovic lived is what we have to do here. We have to, first of all, see how serious the situation is, is in our country and know that this is not going to be just passing. We have to talk with each other about what to do about it, and we have to act together through small groups and networks of small groups. The main lesson, though, I learned from all of them that's so important for the American church is the willingness to suffer. They said, if you are not willing to suffer, really suffer for the faith, you're not going to make it. And this is something that's so important to us because our Christianity has become so soft, yeah. so therapeutic. We've been blessed by living in prosperity and freedom for so long that most of us don't really know what it means to suffer. When you talk to people like I did, uh, who really were, were in prison, who had to worry every time they stepped out in the street that the secret police were going to arrest them because they were Christians, you know that this is what it really means to suffer and bear witness for the Lord. I talked to a man in Moscow a former prisoner in the Gulag who was only released when President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher appealed to Gorbachev to let him free. He's an old man now, Alexander Ungarodnikov. He's quoted in the book. His face is still partially paralyzed from the beatings he took as a Christian in the Soviet prison. And when a man like that, who has put everything on the line for the gospel, when he looks at you and tells you, 
go home and tell the Americans to be ready for this. Well, it, it becomes a sacred charge. Toward the end of the book, you say that a time of painful testing, even persecution is coming, and lukewarm or shallow Christians will not come through with their faith intact. So Christians today must dig deep into the Bible and church tradition and teach themselves how and why today's post-Christian world with its self-centeredness, its quest for happiness, and its rejection of sacred order and transcendent values is a rival religion to authentic Christianity. And we should also see how many of the world's values have been absorbed into Christian life and practice. In other words, you're saying we need to evaluate how worldly the church has become. Yeah, I think we are the church of Laodicea from Revelations. Mm. You know, we become very fat and happy and rich. And all that's going to be taken away from us. And it, it already it's starting to happen now. Again, we're not facing gulags. We're not facing prisons. We are facing the contempt of respectable society for believing the things we do. We are facing potential loss of jobs, loss of access to professions. This is coming, but that's no reason to surrender. It is a reason, though, to listen to the voices of these people who have suffered in our own time, who are still alive today. It's a reason to listen to the voice of those around the world in the suffering church. And it's a reason to look back in history at the long history of Christianity from the apostolic age to now and to realize that our church is a church of martyrs. Blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. Yes. And if it weren't for those faithful martyrs, we wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> no. And you know, that same Russian priest I was telling you about, his name is Father Kirill Kaleda. He pastors a church built next to a field in south of Moscow where the KGB, in a 14-month period in the 1930s, executed 21,000 political prisoners. Wow. Um, and that there's a national monument there now, thanks to the work of Father Kirill to make sure the Russian people didn't forget. And the state even built a big church dedicated to the memory of those who were martyred. And uh, Father Kirill told me, he goes, you know who saved the church here in Russia? It was the old grandmas, hmm. the babushkas, who did not care what the state said. They went to church anyway. Wow. It was through their faithful witness that the memory of Christianity was kept alive. The woman I talked about earlier, Shane, in the podcast, the old Czech woman who told her son she's seeing things happen in this country that terrify her, make her think of communism, she died last year. Hmm. Her name is Milada Scherger. And uh, I learned more recently about what she had to endure in Czechoslovakia. She was tortured wow. as a young woman, tortured for being a Christian. And who would have thought that, you know, in the 1950s, when there she was in her 20s, tortured in a cold cell, a solitary cell in Czechoslovakia for being a Christian, that God would use her years later to inspire the writing of this book huh. that would prepare her adopted country for suffering. I mean, Thank God for her faithful service. You never know what God is going to do with faithfulness. Folks, you've been hearing from Rod Dreher, author of Live Not by Lies. You can find a link to this book, as well as the original essay of the same title by Alexander Solzhenitsyn and many other related resources, simply by heading to the show notes for this episode at HumbleSkeptic.com. Today happens to be Giving Tuesday, and so if you're a fan of this podcast, we need your help to keep it going. You can find a link in the show notes about making a one-time gift or becoming a paid subscriber through Substack. Thanks so much for joining us, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Our lives.